I think this Florida schedules. I'm not going to say it's unfair, but man, it certainly feels that way a little bit. It absolutely feels that way. This is one that, like you, I haven't seen all the other schedules around college football. Some haven't been released yet. There's no way we're going to see one worse than this. Hello and welcome in. It is a Thursday edition of Always College Football. I'm your host, Greg McElroy. Thanks for being with me. I'm here at Studio W in Bristol, Connecticut. We had just done the SEC schedule release show. So I am taping this here on a Wednesday night. And we hope that you all got to enjoy the show, got to consume the show. And I'm saying this as a fan of college football. We are missing an opportunity. We are missing an opportunity to make schedule release shows a big part of our off season. We're doing it here in December. I think it's great for the SEC. I hope the Big Ten follows suit by having a big schedule reveal. I would love to see it in the ACC. I'd love to see it in the Big 12. I think these are big days that can be impactful for the viewership and consumption of our sport. So I hope everybody was able to watch that tonight and be able to talk about some of the matchups that we'll have coming up on the SEC schedule in 2024. I'll have Cole Kublik on the show here. He's my good friend. I love him dearly. He's got some very interesting takes on what we're going to discuss with the 24 schedule release. Who's the hardest schedule? Who's got the biggest gauntlet? Who's got maybe the most manageable schedule? We'll get his takes on Georgia. We'll get his takes on Alabama. We'll get his takes on Auburn. We'll get his takes on all the SEC teams and some of the potential potholes that might lie on the 24 schedule for some of the legitimate contenders. We're also going to continue on with our series by breaking down the Alabama Crimson Tide. We broke down Michigan on Monday's show. We're going to break down Alabama today. We're going to go line by line. How did they get here? What's improved? What's changed? How are they different? Some notable players, some guys that might need to step up big in a college football playoff semifinal game. So we will hit Alabama every possible way. And there is a very unique name in the portal that I will tell you about here in just a little bit as well. So let's kick things off with the Alabama breakdown for the college football playoff. We continue our series by breaking down Michigan's opponent in the Rose Bowl in the first semifinal game that will be played on January 1st. We did Michigan a couple days ago. If you missed our comprehensive how they got here breakdown, go back and check it out. We go pretty much line by line. A lot of stats, a lot of information, but just kind of help tell the story of, of their season. And now we move to the Crimson Tide. Fitting with all the things that have gone on with the SEC schedule release. So we felt like it was appropriate to put Alabama in this show and to break this thing down. When you look at Alabama, and we'll start with their offense. It's really a tale of two seasons. Um, if you break things down in September and October, very, very different from what we got in November and December. So I'm going to break it up like that. And we're going to operate under the assumption that the statistics from the entire season are not really that applicable. But the statistics from November, December, those are the ones that we will apply. Just so you understand how different things were for the Tide in the final five games of the year as opposed to the first eight, these will hopefully help illustrate that story. All right. In September and October, they were 37th in offensive efficiency. They were 50th in points per game, 30.6 points scored per game. They were 79th in yards per game, 367. They were 80th in rushing yards per game at 147. They were 129th in sacks. In the first eight games, they gave up 35 sacks. They were 36th in third down percentage at 43%, and they were 75th in red zone touchdown percentage. Okay, that's September and October. So when you look at the entire stat breakdown of Alabama, their numbers really aren't that impressive offensively. They're really not because September and October weigh them down so heavily. But when you actually look at what they've done in the final five games, you help kind of tell the story of just how much this team has grown and why I think this has been Nick Saban's best coaching job. Since November 1st, they are fifth in offensive efficiency. 37th in the first two months, down to fifth. They were fifth in points per game. Remember, they were 50th. Now they're down to fifth since November 1st. They're 21st in rushing yards per game. That's an improvement of 58 spots. Or, excuse me, 
69 spots or 59 spots. Bad math. They're off the top of my head. They're fifth in turnovers. They turned it over just two times. They were sixth in third down conversion. And they were sixth in red zone touchdown percentage. So they improved in some cases by 50 plus spots from the first eight games to the last five. Now, a lot of that had to do with Jalen Milrose's improvement. He was so much better down the stretch. And if you look at just how he's grown and progressed, his raw QBR in September, October was 66. Well, if you look at what he was there, he improved it by about 20, 25 points there in the month of November and December. Much, much better. And a big part of why he's become a more complete player is he's been much more willing to run the football. Just 142 yards rushing in the first seven games played. In November and December, he had 326 in the five games played. Now, he was the leading rusher in the final five games on the team by 102 yards. Now, Jace McClellan missed time, but he was still 326 yards to Jace McClellan's 234. So significant boost with his production. Another part, too, really good with the football. He's been really smart. First seven games, five picks. But only one sense, and that one came against Kentucky when he got just a little bit greedy. He's taken care of the football, and he's made great decisions. 38 sacks taken has been the downside, but like I said, 30 of those came in the first seven games. Only four were taken in November against LSU, Kentucky, Chattanooga, and Auburn. He also took four against SEC uh, against Georgia in the SEC championship game, but he's improved by leaps and bounds. He's become more accurate, and their passing game has evolved to the point in which 32% of their passing production actually comes outside the pocket. So that's been a significant uptick as well. That's actually the 15th highest percentage in the entire country. Their backfield's really good, really deep, with Jace McClellan, Roydell Williams, and Jam Miller. I think all three are really capable. I think all three do a really good job, and hopefully Jace McClellan will be back to 100% by the time the playoff games are played. The wide receiver group as a whole has been really steady. Very few drops. Very solid across the board. Isaiah Bond has really solidified himself as that number one guy kind of down the stretch. In the final five games, he had 33 targets. That's 15 more than Jermaine Burton, who did miss a game, but he finished second on the team down the stretch as far as targets and target share. But Jermaine Burton all season long has been the deep threat. He really went off against Texas A&M and has been the most consistent guy on the downfield passes, which has been a big part of the weaponry for Alabama this year. He averages 20 air yards per target and creates a bunch of big plays. He actually leads the team with 777 yards and eight touchdowns. Kobe Prentice has come along as well. has been a solid number three. And then Kendrick Law is a guy that's really good with the ball in his hands. Just get him the ball and see what he does with it in space. I think one of the toughest matchups on the offense is a guy named Amari Nyblack. He's a tight end, really long, really athletic, and can create some problems if he's matched up in a one-on-one -on -one situation with safeties. And maybe the biggest point of growth outside of Jalen Milrow has been the offensive line, and most notably at left tackle, freshman Caden Proctor. He had 15 blown blocks in the first seven games and allowed 11 pressures. Well, in the last five games, just six blown blocks and only four pressures allowed. He has played so much better down the stretch and has faced some really good competition down the stretch against the likes of Auburn, who can get after you at along the line of scrimmage against Georgia, who can obviously get after you along the line of scrimmage. Kentucky's got some game records up front as well, and we know LSU has great speed, even though their defense has not really been that consistent this year. So he's been outstanding. Their left guard's Tyler Booker, probably the most consistent guy up front. Seth McLaughlin at center has locked things up pretty good, with the exception of the occasional errant snap, which has to be eliminated when you play against a team like Michigan. Jaden Roberts has been inserted into the lineup at right guard, and then J.C. Latham's an All-American who has really come on strong after a little bit of a slow start. So that's the offense. A group that was very average in the first eight games of the year has become super, super dynamic in the final five games of the season. Moving over to Alabama's defense, this has been the group that really all season long has been really steady, with the exception of the performance against Texas. The secondary has been outstanding. The pass rush has been really solid. And the linebacker play has been as good as they've had in, a, I think, quite a while, to be honest with you, even in the absence of a couple key pieces that we'll talk about here in just a minute. They're ninth in defensive efficiency. They're not a heavy pressure team, 
Alabama has kind of morphed over the years. They used to be a heavy pressure team, a lot of blitzes, a lot of simulated pressures. It's not really who they are at this point. They're a little more sound, and they allow their guys up front to get after the quarterback without overloading the protection. Just 19% of their defensive snaps are blitzes. That is 101st in college football. So you don't see a lot of pressures from Alabama, but they have given up a decent amount of explosive plays. That, I think, is going to be important for Michigan. They've given up 33 plays since November 1st that have gone 10 yards on the ground and 20 yards through the air. So limiting explosive plays has still been a little bit inconsistent at times, and they're going to have to be great in that aspect against a Michigan group that can certainly create. The defensive line is the bread and butter, has been for a really long time. And We talked a few days ago about how few snaps Michigan's defensive line had played. They really roll a lot of guys, eight, nine, ten guys, some guys situationally used, but they did not have a single defensive player, Michigan didn't, that had over 389 defensive snaps. Not the case for Alabama. You know who their guys are, they're going to play who they play, and they're going to get a lot out of those guys. Justin Aboigby leads the group with 582 snaps. Dallas Turner is in at 578. Chris Braswell's in at 508. So three guys that have eclipsed the 500 snap mark, but are still giving relentless effort, at least at the moment, with what we've seen down the stretch. Tim Keenan plays an awful lot in the middle. He leads the group inside at 440 snaps, and then Tim Smith at 349. Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell are the two guys that really make it happen. They're the edge guys. They're going to be outstanding. Number 41, Chris Braswell. Number 15, Dallas Turner. They've combined to account for more than 40 pressures, and they've combined to account for 17 sacks. Those are the guys that really get it done on the edges of the defense, and they're going to have the really big day to be able to create some pressures there on the front because they're not going to be a group, Bama's not, that's going to overload you with a lot of blitzes and a lot of six, seven, five-man pressures. Justin Aboigby has been really solid for him, and Tim Keenan's been really good. And then Jaheim Otis, uh, Justin Aboigby's 92, Tim Keenan's 96, Jaheim Otis is number 91. He's really big in the game against Michigan, Jaheim Otis is. He's 340 pounds. He's a great run stopper. And on first and second down, he's a guy that can be really disruptive and really sound against the run. Doesn't play a ton of snaps. Doesn't see as much action as some of the other guys. But in this game in particular, I think it's very important for him to have a really big day. Linebacker depth has been challenged at times this year, and that's been something that's been problematic for Bama at times in the past. If they lost a guy, there was a pretty decent drop-off from their ones to their twos. That was really the last couple years. Over the course of Nick Saban's time from 2007 to 2018 or 19, they had great depth at that position. They were a little thin the last couple years. Well, they've established great depth again this year. Deontay Lawson had to miss three games, but he's definitely their most explosive linebacker. Jihad Campbell has probably been, at times, their most productive linebacker as far as tackles are concerned. He's been really good and really steady. They're filling in for Lawson when he was absent for a few games, and then Trez Marshall has been excellent there at the second level as well. But the strength of the defense outside of the edges is in the back end. Caleb Downs is a true freshman that leads the team in total tackles. He's been everything that they thought he'd be and some. Very instinctive, very sound very solid in coverage, and has a great understanding for a young player of what they're trying to do schematically. On the perimeter, you have Terrian Arnold, who is the most targeted guy in the secondary by a wide margin, but he's actually been really consistent. He leads the team in pass breakups and has done a really good job in coverage all season long. And then the guy that most people are more familiar with is Kool-Aid McKinstry. He's allowed just nine completions this year on 28 primary cover attempts. That's pretty dang impressive. And if you remove the Texas game from this season's workload, a 13-game sample size, if you remove the Texas game, he's been elite. He did not play well against the Longhorns, but he's really bounced back nicely from that performance and has been steady down the stretch. Another guy that needs to definitely get a shout-out is Trey Amos. He's had to step up multiple times this year with Taron Arnold and Cooley McKinstry occasionally getting a little bit banged up, and he hasn't skipped a beat. He's been a huge addition in the portal to fortify the depth at the corner spots. You also have Malachi Moore, who's excellent there in the nickel and the star position that they put a lot on his shoulders to be able to handle the slot. And in the special teams unit, you have Will Reichert, who missed three field goals this year, two against LSU and one against Auburn, but is 20 of 23. And James Burnip, who averaged 47 yards a punt, which is in the top 10 
in the FBS. So Alabama, an extremely well-rounded team. Very good on defense from start to finish this year. The offense, not so great there in the first eight weeks. But really, the last five games, they've come into their own and played much, much better down the stretch. All right, he's one of my best friends in the entire world. Uh, one of my favorite people to talk college football with. We do it 15 hours a week on Mac and Cube in the morning on Jock 94.5. And yet, we still call each other after the show sometimes to talk ball. He's Cole Kublik. You can also catch his work on the Cube Show on YouTube and on podcast. He does an amazing job. So uh, he's our resident O-line aficionado and guru. Um, but he has learned in the time that we've been working together about other sports as well and other positions as well. So it's been nice. Cole, what's up, bud? Uh, doing great, man. Uh, excited about the schedule release that's, that's coming out. And just it feels real. Uh, it feels like Oklahoma and Texas <laughs> are actually a part of the league. I was talking to a friend of mine that's on the Texas staff, and they were telling me about a place that we're going to go eat and said, hey, when you get to Austin <laughs> to cover a game next year, we, we got to go to this spot. And I just thought to myself, oh, wow. Like it's it's here. It's 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 time for it to happen. And now you see these games lined up. It's just man, it's incredible. We still got a, a great bowl games, playoff in front of us. But to get this is kind of an appetizer for that. Whew, I'm in hog heaven. Well, well, you always uh, you always give freebies on the radio show. So I'm surprised you didn't give it there to the whatever restaurant you're going to. I can't Austin. remember what uh, it was. So it's uh, oh, that's all that we'll go there. <laughs> uh, you'll like it. A lot of good food options there. Let's start just kind of overarching thoughts. Um, Let's start with Texas and Oklahoma because I just feel like you have to start there. Yeah, you know, let's start with let's start with Texas. They're they're right now. They're they're the team coming out of the Big Twelve that's positioned to potentially win a championship. Um, I feel like there's two welcome to the SEC moments uh, because uh, you know the SEC it's it's not so much about being at your best against the top teams. That's understandable. Like sure. if you don't show up and play well against Georgia. You don't show up play well against Alabama. You don't show show up play well against Oklahoma. Like you're going to have your hands full. But to me, it's the next tier game that is challenging. So I look at the game against Oklahoma. Then you have to follow it with a home game against the Georgia Bulldogs, a team that's won two championships in a row. Like that to me is the welcome to the SEC moment. And then the other one is you get Florida. That'll be a physical game. We don't know how good Florida will be. We don't know how good Florida will be at that point of the season. Then you follow it up by going to Fayetteville, where it's like one after – it's like, all right, well, oh, we survived Florida. That was not a good performance. Now we got to go to Fayetteville and take on a team. This is their Super Bowl, and they've had it circled all year. So what jumped out to you when looking at the Texas schedule? Some of the things that you brought up, Greg, but maybe in a little bit of a different way, uh, you talk about a very smooth landing into the SEC for the Texas Longhorns, and – the first thing that I think of for teams that haven't really been a part of it, maybe fans that don't know it the way that you and I do, growing up with it, playing in it, being around it, now covering it, is just uh, kind of like what you said there. Some of what most people would consider the mid-tier teams, what those venues are like, Fayetteville, Starkville, Columbia, South yeah. Carolina. Everybody knows Baton Rouge is nuts. Everybody knows when <laughs> right. Florida's rolling, you go play in the swamp, you're not going to hear anything. Tennessee, when you go to Rocky Top and they're winning, there's literally not a place louder, maybe on planet Earth, as far as a sporting venue is concerned. But they're going to get indoctrinated into the SEC on November the 16th, in my opinion, because it won't happen at Vanderbilt, especially now that they're still going to be doing renovations. Uh, that thing's not going to be ready to go, and it's probably not going to be super loud anyway. So you really don't get a full taste of it. Yes, from a physical standpoint, the games you brought up, but... You don't really dip your toe into it until November the 16th. And like you said, Florida team, logo, big game. Even if Florida is a four-win team, it doesn't matter. It's the Florida Gators, and it's the first time they've met as conference opponents. That will be big. And then you'll go to Fayetteville, a place where a lot of those young men probably haven't really heard that it's a tough place to go play or it's that physical First off, on November the 16th, it's not going to be comfortable weather-wise. It was right. miserable, I feel like, when we went in September. It didn't matter. But you go there in the middle of November, it's not going to be a cool – it's not going to be a comfortable place to play. It's going to be cold. It's probably going to be a little bit rainy. That grass is going to be dead. So it's not going to be a lot of cushion when you get tackled. And they're going to – whoa, pig, suey. And they're going to see that giant hog when they come running out of the tunnel. In this, I can remember the first time I went, I was like, what is happening in this place? This is nuts. And it's yeah. a lot bigger and a lot louder and a lot nicer than I went there. And then the other thing, Greg, is following those up, you get a very physical Kentucky football team. Doesn't matter how good they are. You know, like I know, yeah. Mark Stoops' team's going to beat you up before you have to play that first one back at Texas A&M. So that close to the schedule, there's one other that's 
a little bit more difficult and a little more daunting. But that's what stuck out to me is they are going to have a nice landing into the league by not really having to play at a difficult new venue until November the 16th. But that close to the season is going to be brutal. Yeah, it's going to be tough. And I'll say this. like I called the last Texas and Oklahoma game in Fayetteville, and it was hostile. Yep. I mean, it was nuts. I mean, they hate Texas. I mean, they hate Texas. And in this league, like, people love to hate more than they love to love. Like, you and I, have, we've talked about that before. Like, Arkansas hates Texas as much as Texas A&M hates Texas. And so they're going to bring their best stuff. And I'll say this, too. You mentioned November 16th. I called LSU at Arkansas in 2022. Yep. That was the day that Jaden Daniels and LSU, that high-flying offensive attack, scored like 10 points. And the game was won by LSU's defense that day. So I know that was, that was Harold Perkins kind of coming out party, right? Harold Perkins had like four sacks. Yeah. So like it was a miserable day to play offense. Miserable. So you're 100% right there. Mid-November, not an easy place to play by any stretch of the imagination. Let's move over to Oklahoma for a minute. Um, I feel like it's somewhat manageable early, right? First four games are at home. Then, hey, in comes Tennessee. You can gradually ramp it up. Houston will give you a little bit of a test comparable um, comparable with, with what they've seen the last couple of years. Uh, I don't think Houston, I think Willie Fritz will do a great job. I don't know what they're going to have next year. But I think that first test will be Tennessee. And then they're welcome to the SEC moment is the next week. You get Tennessee, great, congratulations. Now you got to go to Jordan-Hare. Yep. And you got to go play at Auburn, a place like you described. And like everyone knows at this point, it's no secret anymore. Auburn's an impossible place to play. It's very, very difficult. So that's the tough spot for me where I'm circling it for Oklahoma. It's like, all right, you might get Tennessee at home, but man, when you go to Auburn, you better be ready to rip. And the only good news there, you'll have the week off before you play in the Red River rivalry game the next week in Dallas against Texas. But yes, I agree. You get the first four at home. Then you go to Jordan-Hare Stadium. You've told me. Uh, I've had other SEC quarterbacks tell me Aaron Murray has mentioned it. Trevor Knight has mentioned that it's the toughest place they played. And it's not always just because of the noise. It's just there's something about that environment that's different. And that's one, again, that's probably not at the top of most people's list where they would say, oh, man, we got to go there. Or, oh, wow, it's going to be tough to go play there. But then when you get there and you see it and you live it, you understand what it's all about. And that will happen early. And I feel like we're going to say this about almost every team. That November, yes, you started off with Maine and you have a week off, but still at Missouri, at LSU and Alabama at home in November. And is here's the thing. We probably should start over really quick because you asked the first thing I thought of when I saw this. The first thing I thought of, Greg, when I went through all these schedules and I started looking at it, I said to myself, I don't think we're going to get a single person that's going to be back saying, why didn't they go to nine conference games? Because <laughs> there's not one of these schedules you look at and say, oh, man, they're good. They're, they're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. I mean, Georgia's schedule is like, whoa, Nelly. It's, it's yeah. Florida is like, you can't be serious. And no one's going to look at any of these schedules and say, yeah, if they were at nine, it'd be tough, but I think they're going to be good. They're all unbelievable. And some of that is what they've done in the non-conference as well. But all these schedules are tough. And the close is the last month of the season for a lot of these teams is going to be brutal. You get Alabama at home, and then you have to go to Death Valley to close out your first season in the SEC. Yeah. Oh, I, that one's going to be a lot of fun. No, that one, I think their final three games are probably as tough as anybody because I think Mizzou's going to be really good next year. Granted, a few things they might have to figure out, a couple pieces that need to be replaced for sure. Uh, Cody Schrader being maybe the, the the most obvious example, a guy that probably could have made a strong case for the Doak Walker if he didn't win it. Uh, Ollie Gordon ended up winning it, but he was as good as anybody. That offensive line, you would know better than I do. How do they retool up there? Uh, but at Missouri – team that's going to finish more than likely in the top 10 to 12, depending on how the bye game, uh, the bowl game goes against Ohio State. you got Bama to them, and you got LSU on the road. I mean, two really difficult road trips. Missouri's going to be really cold. We know that as well. They're in November. So I, I think that final stretch for Oklahoma is rough. I mean, and, and two, that's going to be the biggest difference, I think, for Texas and Oklahoma. Now, I think Texas, this year's roster, I don't know what next year's roster is going to look like, but I think the attrition that they might experience – is going to be at a whole nother level than what they've experienced up to this point. No disrespect to the Big 12 at all. I have a ton yeah. of respect for the league, love the league, but it's a little bit more wide open. It's a little bit more spread out. Uh, the SEC is not really built that way. It's really, you know, all the teams, all the best teams are built from the inside out. Right. So you're just going to lose guys. And even the best, Georgia, the deepest roster, arguably in college football, 
lost how many guys this year? I mean, they were without their guard for a while. They were without their right tackle for a while. They were without Brock Bowers. They were without Lad McConkey. They they lost two running backs. And had all the running backs in fall point. camp were hurt. Yeah, all of them. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, and then de- defensively, they had a handful of guys that were in the lineup. They had two freshmen in the lineup. At, I mean, they, they lost Dumas Johnson. I mean, they lost a ton of guys just because that's what happens. And ultimately, their play dropped off. Now, not to the extent that it would for most teams, but it did drop off by their standards. So I think the attrition for Texas and Oklahoma – being able to weather the storm, stay healthy through October and September before things really ramp up in November is something that's really, really going to be challenging. Let's get to the two top dogs at the moment in the SEC. Let's start with Alabama. Uh, when you look at at Alabama's schedule, I'll give you the floor first because I have a ton of takeaways from the schedule, but okay. I want to know yours coming out of the gate to begin with. Um, Very friendly. I'll say that. And some people will look at some of the teams and say, oh, really? Or look at where they have to play. You're at Wisconsin, but it's early. So you can, and they're still trying to rebuild. Phil Longo's still trying to figure that offense out. So that's, that's, you can, you can manage that one. You get Georgia at home early. It's going to be a night game. That thing's going to be rocking, but you're off the week before you play Georgia. Massive. You don't have back to back road games the whole season, Greg. They don't go on the road in consecutive weeks for the entire year. And then you're off again before LSU, which has kind of become a tradition that Alabama and LSU have been off where they play one another. Yes, the trip to Oklahoma is what a lot of people are going to look at and say, goodness gracious, you go to Norman before you go play in the Iron Bowl. We're used to that being lettuce weekend, as you and I have gotten to call it, where you just get all the what people used to reference as cupcakes. That's going to be gone for a lot of schools. Now, yeah, that's a tough trip, and you don't want that before the Iron Bowl. But I look at it as not going on the road in back-to-back weeks, off yeah. before probably, let's just say this, the two most talented teams you'll play, you're going to have a bye week before you play those two teams. I don't know if they'll be the best. We have no idea what they're going to look like next year. But you're off for LSU, off for Georgia. That is huge. Yeah, you're at LSU. You're, you go to Norman. You go to Knoxville. You're at Wisconsin. you got to go to Camp Randall. All of those are difficult. But I do think that blow was softened greatly by the way the schedule lays out for Alabama. Yeah, it's all about the layout for them. I completely agree. Um, the two bye weeks being in front of, like you said, the two most probably talent-rich teams that they'll face is massive. And where they're at on the schedule, too. You yeah. get two games to ramp up. And look, I, people will point to, well, the South Florida gave them a game. Like, I, I get that. I understand that. The first two games, though, are, hey, let's trial and error. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can kind of get away with. But what are we? You figure out who you are by running your base vanilla stuff. And then you better put your best foot forward on the road at Wisconsin. Even if you don't have your A-plus game, you can probably still get a win at this point with where Wisconsin's at and their program's development. And then you get to reassess, all right, Wisconsin exposed a couple flaws. Now we got a bye week to clean it up before the Georgia Bulldogs come to your house. I mean, that's massive, I think. Then, hey, you're maybe going to be a little flat after Georgia. That, that, hey, who can blame them? A lot of people are. A little flat after Georgia? Good, you go to Vandy. And you'll be a four-touchdown favorite in that game. Georgia was a four-touchdown favorite when they killed Kentucky, went to Vandy, and had a down game, but they still won by two, three touchdowns. So that, I think, There'll be 50,000 Alabama fans there. I mean, it's... I would take the under fun. because it doesn't seat that many, but yes, whatever I don't know where the seats. seating will be by then, but yes. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Um, and then you look, you got Tennessee on the road. Very difficult game. South Carolina's in there, too, but they're at home. If it was in Como, I'd say that's a tough spot. At Tennessee, we know that's going to be a really difficult game, and they'll have to ramp it up for that. And then, boom, they come home and they have Missouri coming to their place. I think Missouri's going to be really good, but it's in Tuscaloosa. Uh, The one negative of Alabama's schedule is that four of their opponents have an open date before they tee it up against the tie. However, one of those is Vanderbilt. The other, two of the three, two of the other three are Georgia and LSU, who Bama also has an open date against. So Oklahoma is the only one that really, I think, has a massive competitive advantage in having that open date before they play the tie. But at that point, it's like, all right, there's only a couple games left. And Bama plays, what? I don't even remember Mercer the, Mercer. the week before. Yeah, yeah. It's a tricky offense. It's a tricky team. That's your team. Inside here's the joke. Other, here's the other part, real quick, about this one. What defensively, what has given Alabama troubles under Nick Saban? He's he's had a little bit of an issue, sort of morphing to that spread up tempo, push the ball down the field offense at times, especially when you add a mobile quarterback. Well, you get you get Tyson Helton, Alex Golish, and then you get Phil Longo 
to open up the season. Like you're going to know exactly what you are against those style offenses. So when you get yeah. to Tennessee or you get to LSU a little bit later in the season, you get to Auburn later in the season. Now they're all going to have their different flavors, but they're all constructed from a lot of the same beliefs and principles. So nobody's going to go out bully Alabama. So you're not worried about playing a team that's going to try to outmuscle you with the way Nick Saban builds his roster. So I actually like the fact that they're going to get those three offenses out of the gate. Like you said, not just know where you are as a team, but specifically as a defense, what can we stop? How are we in coverage? What do, how, how many does it take to get to the quarterback? Can we get away with it with four? Do we have to add pressure? We're going to have to play zone. How much man can we play? They're going to know that September 15th, the day after the Wisconsin game. So you have a pretty good idea where they're going to be from all of those perspectives. Yeah, I, I think that they'll have a couple good dress rehearsals. The most important game for their prep down the road that can be applicable is that South Florida game because there yep. are applications with South Florida's offense. Golish was at Tennessee. He's now at South Florida. Gave him some fits, obviously, in 2022. Um, but that'll be a good dress rehearsal, and it'll be good to apply some of the things you learn in that offense to the ones they'll face down the road. Completely agree. Let's get to Georgia. I think it's a brutal schedule. Uh, I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really know how else to describe it. You get two you teams. I mean, it, two teams on the road that are playing in the playoffs. I mean, that's that's in a four week span. Um, it, it's really tough, and then you have a rival game that's sandwiched in between the two with Auburn coming to your place. And then Mississippi State, I mean, who knows what Jeff Levy's going to be? I don't know what Jeff Levy's yeah. going to do down there, but I know it's an offense that's tough to defend uh, and an offense that, that could give them maybe some fits if, if they're not really seamless in the back end with their communication. So, now, I think Georgia's schedule is absolutely brutal, and it's front-loaded, too. Now, they played a lot of freshmen this year. Like, you watched them. I watched them. Yeah. I had them a couple times. Like, they played a lot of freshmen, so they'll be really, really good because they had two true freshmen playing at linebacker. They had a true freshman playing up front. Like they had true freshmen really all over the field. So I don't think there's going to be as much of a learning curve breaking in some new pieces. But in the event in which they're not clicking on all cylinders, you got Clemson out of the gate, you better be ready to roll. And then the rest of their schedule is really tough in those first eight games. So uh, I think it's a real gauntlet. And they probably have if not the toughest schedule, definitely at, probably at worst the second toughest schedule. Well, here's the, two things. Number one, everything you said is accurate. The first thing that stuck out to me, Greg, three home games against SEC opponents? Three. Yeah. That's it. I mean, you, you get Auburn at home, Mississippi State at home, Tennessee at home. That's it. That's all That's she it. wrote. Those are only conference games that you're going to play at home. It's just wild to even think about. You add Georgia Tech and Clemson to the schedule, which is no pushover by any stretch of the imagination. And then what if we tried to make a game for the last, I don't know, five of the last six years, six of the last eight years? It's that Kentucky-Georgia game, right? And it kind of yeah. hasn't been. You called it this year. And I think folks like us who just love college football, like we've wanted Coach Stoops to be close. We've wanted that game to be real. We've wanted, and Georgia's heard that noise and they've stepped up to the challenge every time. I had the game a couple of years ago. Uh, I believe it was actually in 20, the early kick where neither team threw a pass in the first half. Georgia won like 17 3 or something. Like neither team could move the ball. But nonetheless, Georgia has stood up to that challenge each and every time. But that's also been a little bit later in the year when Georgia's known exactly who they are. I know Kentucky doesn't always like fire out of the gate on all cylinders, but if I'm Stoops and I'm Kentucky, I'd much rather have that game week three than I would week eight or week six. Maybe that's a little bit of an advantage for Kentucky if they can get their act together. We know they're going to have speed at receiver. They're going to be dynamic out there. You get a quarterback that played for that team that's probably going to be your starter. Should be year two under Liam Cohen as your offensive coordinator. Brad White will be back as the D.C. I'm not saying it's an even matchup. No way would I ever say that. But getting that thing at Kroger Field week three as opposed to Georgia knowing exactly who they are and you going and trying to out-muscle Georgia in week eight or nine, whatever that's been, that's not going to happen. This, I think, maybe gives a little bit more life to that game. And then just the road schedule, man. I mean, goodness, Clemson in Atlanta, at Kentucky, at Alabama, at Texas. We know Florida's in Jacksonville. At Ole Miss later in the season. I mean, it's just, Wow. I, I, we, we're used to seeing Arkansas and South Carolina schedules and discussing them this way. Like saying, right. how in the hell are they going to get through that? Georgia and Florida are the teams this year that we look at and say, how are they going to get through that? Because the schedules are just unbelievable. All right, the toughest schedule. I think you and I are in agreement. Uh, I don't know how anybody could look at this with a straight face and say it's not Florida. I mean, 
just to just to put things in perspective, you get Miami, who I think is excellent. I mean, I think that's a I think they're a good football team. I think Mario's gonna take a big leap this year. I'm not gonna say it's Texas year three under Sark. I'm not gonna say that, but I think Miami is positioned to take a big leap. They've recruited well, they have good, solid, stable pieces, good freshmen that were playing impactful roles for them. So I think Miami's gonna be good. I think UCF's gonna be a handful. They now, obviously, that's a Super Bowl game for UCF as a program justifier, one that they won a couple years ago in the bowl game. You're at Texas. The 10 of your 11 FBS opponents are playing in a bowl game this year. Only one home game between week 7 and 11. That includes two road games and a neutral side against Georgia. I, I just think this I think this Florida schedule is – I'm not going to say it's unfair, but, man, it certainly feels that way a little bit. It absolutely feels that way. This is one that, like you, I, I haven't seen all the other schedules around college football. Some haven't been released yet. There's no way we're going to see one worse than this. There's there's no one that we're going to see with the level of difficulty, especially in some of the offshoot aspects of it, like you talked about, Greg, where Miami, that game's going to mean a lot more. We know that is, especially right out of the gates. We're going to have the entire offseason – to hype right. up that in-state rivalry game. And then for UCF, we know how they're going to view that game. We know that game is going to mean to them all the back and forth and the two-for-one, all that. Like that's, That is going to be one. Plus, Gus Malzahn's coached in the league, so he has an understanding of just what it takes to win in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, it, and then obviously you're at Florida State, which we know Florida State, a team on the brink of the playoff this year, we both love Coach Norvell and how he draws his offense up. That's not going to be an easy task. The road schedule, you mentioned it, unbelievable. I mean, throwing a Sanford team week two, you got to go play air raid, like true old school air raid in week two with a guy who's been running it forever that did it under Leach, played under Leach. That's not one. And that was one. Remember, they pushed Mullen a couple of years ago. It was like 72-59 or something, and it was tight in the third quarter. So even that one's not one that you look at and say, oh, okay, you'll be good. At Florida State, at Texas, in Knoxville, you got to go to Starkville, and then of course you play Georgia and Jacksonville. Oh man, that's uh, I I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it. To be honest with you, actually I have, and it's been in the AFC North in the NFL is where I've seen something <laughs> like it. But in college football, Greg, I don't know if I've seen a schedule like this, man. Maybe the AFC North like ten years ago. That that was a gauntlet when you were playing in the AFC Steelers. North is what I was referencing. Yeah, right. yes. Bengals. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That was a, <laughs> That was a gauntlet for sure back then, no doubt about it. Uh, just to put things in perspective, to button it up with a couple more things. You look at the college football playoff top 20 right now. I know rosters change. I know we have crazy turnover. I know that these teams won't all be the same. Teams that are in the top 20 this year will fall like there's no tomorrow and the teams that are outside that will pop up. But they play six teams that all finished in the CFP top 20, four away from home. Three of the four that are away from home actually finished in the top six in Georgia, Texas, and Florida State. That to me is is unbelievable. When you when you take that into account, you got the road trip to Tennessee, you got LSU at your place. Uh, it's a gauntlet, no doubt about it. A couple other things that kind of popped up to me, Cole. I know you feel strongly about Auburn's schedule. I mean, who doesn't look forward to an old school ACC SEC matchup between Auburn and Cal? Uh, that'll do a lot for us <laughs> for sure. But I, I think Auburn has a chance next year and Hugh Freeze's second year to play the spoiler like seven different times. I mean, there are so many opportunities for Auburn to be the spoiler. Now, I don't think anybody's going to put them in the SEC title game next year, but they have a chance to beat a team or two that could very easily get there. And that's, I think, a, a dangerous thing because Auburn's a very dangerous team when you put them in their own building. Well, you, you, we brought it up a little bit earlier. Alabama will go to Norman before the Iron Bowl. You love that, even though Auburn has to play A&M, which has just been usually a wild game every time they've played since A&M's come into the league the week before you travel to Tuscaloosa. You never look at a schedule where you go to Athens and Tuscaloosa and feel good about it. That's just impossible. You can't do that. But you do feel good about the fact that Georgia goes to Tuscaloosa before Auburn comes to town. So that helps you out just a little bit. And then in complete oddball fashion, Auburn doesn't leave home until October the 5th. So they'll be in Jordan-Hare Stadium until the month of October. But then, Greg, they don't come back home until November the 2nd against Vanderbilt. Because you get a bye <laughs> week there. You're at Georgia, at Missouri, at Kentucky. So you love stacking up those home games early. But then you're going to have to wait a month to get it back. And you have to go to Athens and Tuscaloosa. So, you know, it's listen, it's, none of these are going to be easy at all. But I do think some of the difficulties that we knew Auburn was going to get – are offset just a little bit about where you get them. Like you got back-to-back -back road games, Missouri and Kentucky. So you go to Columbia and Lexington, but you're off after Georgia 
and then those two. So at least you get a little bit of a break there. And then you'll have a bye week after Vanderbilt going into La Monroe before you get A&M and Bama. Like that could be a long break for, you know, if you had a guy with a concussion or you have a guy with a bruised shoulder or you have a guy with some sort of a tweak in his knee. If, you, if a guy needed a tightrope after the Kentucky game, he could be back for A&M or Alabama, realistically, with that kind of time off, and you're not going to drop any games, possibly. So I do think there are some, some areas of the schedule that look a little bit favorable, especially considering what we knew Auburn was going to have on that schedule. Yeah, I, I think there are some spots, though, where they, they can be a landmine, a big land. And they almost were a couple times this year. I mean, they played Georgia close, they played Bama close, granted both at home. But that could be a landmine for sure, and, and one that I think everyone that's associated or familiar with the SEC, they understand. Uh, how treacherous that matchup might be from time to time. Before we get to the non-conference slate, which is ridiculous, and I'm so glad that we're seeing these games in college football. I love non-conference games. I always have. It gives you something to talk about. And in the 12-team format, who knows how much of a factor they're going to play. I think it could be significant with how the league is perceived. So I want to get to those. But before we do, are there any other schedules you'd like to touch on and, and kind of discuss? There's another day that I'd like to touch on and discuss with you, and especially somebody who spent a large portion of his life in Texas. We're getting Texas, Texas A&M back. Love it. So excited about it. No Egg Bowl on Thanksgiving. No Texas, Texas A&M on Thanksgiving. Like that, to me, (laughs) that was just a big letdown for me. I'm going to be honest with you. I had a chance to call the Egg Bowl on Thanksgiving this year. You've done it a couple of times. I was a little bummed out by seeing that I'm going to be sitting there Thanksgiving night if I'm not working a game, not going to have an SEC game to be able to watch. Well, uh, I, I'm not going to necessarily reveal the sources at the moment, but there is scheduling flexibility uh, both in week one and in week 14. So rivalry week, there is some scheduling okay. flexibility okay. there. So you could see one of those games that's currently scheduled for Saturday be moved up to Friday and potentially in some cases maybe even be moved up to Thanksgiving. So don't don't be too upset your thanksgiving meal as of right now is intact <laughs> but it could very well get shelved uh we know that very very much uh how about tennessee um how about arkansas any any takeaways from some of the teams that that also you know tennessee i think is still a very dangerous team i know they came back to earth a little this year but i, I still think they're a team that can make some noise uh, i don't know if they will have all the pieces yet to really make a charge next year for the title but I think they could be like Auburn to an extent where they could ruin someone's season pretty quickly. Yeah, offensively, I think they're going to be a team that can be very dangerous. You've got Mincy coming back at right tackle. John Campbell Jr. is coming back at left tackle. Nico Iamaleva, obviously everybody's excited about. The receivers won't be an issue. Running back won't be an issue. Defensively, I still have some concerns. You get Keenan Peely back, but you look at, at some of those teams on that schedule, you're going to have to go against Alabama's defense. You're going to have to go against Georgia's defense. You're going to have to go against Oklahoma's defense. They get their star linebacker back a couple of weeks ago who thought we were going to go to the NFL. Now he's not going to go to the NFL. Uh, an NC State defense that just flat gets after you. Um, athletically, might not be able to run with you, but you and I both know, love a fist fight and will be up to that challenge each and every week. So just some of the Travis Williams did a great job with the Arkansas defense last year, and that one will be on the schedule. So Brad White's Kentucky defense has given them some issues at times. That's the thing that first sticks out to me about the Tennessee schedule. Uh, once again, anytime you get Alabama and Georgia on one schedule, you're not going to say that there's anything light about it or anything comfortable about it. But it, it's exciting with the way that they're going to get going out of the gate. I mean, you get NC State and Charlotte, you get that trip to Oklahoma. We've seen Tennessee and Norman uh, not too long ago, it doesn't feel like. Uh, and then obviously some of the traditional games like Florida and Kentucky that we're excited about each and every, every each and every year. So, and they don't have the the brutal close that a lot of other teams do. UTEP and then at Vanderbilt last two games. Yes, you're at Georgia November sixteenth, but it feels like the close for Tennessee is not one of the many that we will talk about that are just going to be absolutely nasty down the stretch. Yeah, it does lighten up a bit, and it has for a while. I mean, their schedule usually in the first nine weeks really tough, and then it gets more manageable. At least it has in the last decade or so it feels. Uh, finally, before we get to the non-conference, Ole Miss and Missouri, two teams that would be in the college football playoff if it were 12 teams right now. Anything that you took – I think Ole Miss might have the most manageable schedule. I, I know there is no manageable schedules. It's right. I, mean, I made I made the uh, – I guess the, the metaphor or the analogy that it's like wrestling a snake. Like there are some snakes I'd less like – to wrestle, but I'm not really thrilled about wrestling any of them. 
Um, and that's kind of how I would describe Ole Miss's schedule. Like it might be the most manageable snake to wrestle, but it's still a snake nonetheless. So uh, do you have a takeaway about maybe the most gettable schedule? Here's what I like about it, Greg, is Lane Kiffin did an excellent job this year, and I actually had a couple conversations with him about how he feels he's grown as a coach and doesn't just go into every game thinking it has to be a shootout. But he also admitted, I love a shootout, and I feel like I'm a better coach when I'm coaching in a shootout. Well, how many contrast and style games do you see on that schedule? Now, if Florida had, if Billy had everything the way he wanted it, that could be one. Georgia could be one. Oklahoma's going to throw the ball around. LSU's probably still throwing the ball around. South Carolina's not going to be ready to grind you out and keep you to six or seven possessions. Kentucky, maybe, but I, I, I don't really know. Georgia Southern's going to pitch it around. I don't know what Derek Mason's going to do on offense at Middle Tennessee. F- uh, Mississippi State, we've, I mean, Levy's coached with Lane. We know what that game's going to be. That's going to take six and a half hours in the Egg Bowl now on moving forward. So I feel like in, in Arkansas, I don't think even with Petrino, is going to be really ready to have their offense completely ramped up just yet. There's a lot of games on there that are going to be Lane Kiffin-style football games because of what we know those offenses are going to be, and they're not going to be high-level defenses just yet. So not only the teams, I do think the road venues, when you're at South Carolina, you're at LSU, you got a weird trip to Wake, you're at Florida, at Arkansas, those are tough places to win no matter what. doesn't matter what the teams look like. But yes, those are favorable matchups because of the styles, and then the way the schedule kind of lays out and plays out I think it's pretty favorable for that Ole Miss football team this year. Yeah, and with what they bring back, I mean, they could certainly be a spoiler in the playoff again next year. I don't think it would shock any of us if they put together another 10-win season next year. It certainly wouldn't shock me. All right, last one before we get out of here. Top non-conference game. If you had to choose one, I know it's an impossible thing to ask. It's like choosing your favorite child. But if you had to pick one, I said you can watch only one SEC non-conference game in 2024 which one are you going with god one for the whole year i mean i want to say i want to say lsu and usc but this, i mean you talk about just a massive logo game a massive helmet game i i, I would love to go there but it, the fact that it's in vegas it's cool but i want this to also be in one of these venues that we cherish and that we love and it's hard for me to say Texas at Michigan because this is Texas's first year as an SEC team, but that's the one, man. Like Texas, first year as an SEC team, coming off of both those teams being in the college football playoff. I mean, hell, they could be playing for the national championship for all we know. And then they're going to meet in the big house week two. I know it's weird for me to not pick a, a, you know, a Georgia or a Bama or a Florida or an LSU or an Auburn. But that matchup's too big, man. Like, I mean, it's, it, 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 those, those helmets don't get much bigger than that. So I got to go yeah. Texas at Michigan. Yeah, I think the, the two that you list are certainly the two that jump off the page to me. USC, LSU. And because it's Labor Day Sunday, too, it's just such a big window. Such a great day for college football. So I think that'll be an amazing game. Texas, Michigan, like, I mean, come on. Do I need to even sell that one to nope. you? The other one that I'm very intrigued by, though, because of the tentacles, Notre Dame at Texas yeah. A&M. Mike Elko's first game playing against his former employer where he was the DC there for a few years before he became the DC at Texas A&M against his former quarterback in Riley Leonard, who now transferred from Duke to Notre Dame. So I don't know if there's a game on the schedule that sums up where we're at in college football more than Notre Dame at A&M. <laughs> oh, let me, let me, let me add one for you. <laughs> With probably no more than five players who started for Texas A&M's roster returning next year. Right, I mean, right. who's back? Bryce Anderson? I mean, everybody else feels like they're in the portal or going to the NFL. So that A&M roster is going to even look totally different. So, yeah, to follow up with what you're saying about this is where we are in college football, that A&M roster and the roster turnover they see is going to be another perfect example of that. No, it's awesome, dude. Great stuff, as always. I always love talking to you about this stuff. You're so dialed in. Check out Cole on The Cube Show. He's amazing. Uh, check him out every day. Uh, it's shameless plug, 7 to 10, Sirius, uh, Sirius XM, Jocks 94.5. <laughs> uh, you can download the app and listen to us there. We rip every day, 7 to 10 Central. So, Cole, appreciate you, brother. Absolutely, man. Enjoyed a good job on that, uh, on that schedule release show tonight. We didn't need extra excitement, but you guys gave it to us. Yeah, we're, we're dialed in, baby. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Continue to encourage all of you to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We so appreciate the support that you've shown the show and know that we appreciate all of you that have listened to us from all over the world. 
couple of interesting portal notes, I might add. Grayson McCall has decided to move from Coastal Carolina to NC State, so that's a big addition there for NC State being able to fill the void of Brennan Armstrong and MJ Morris, both of which have moved on. Or, well, Brennan Armstrong will move on. So Grayson McCall, he's flirted with leaving Coastal Carolina for a while. He now does. He will be more than likely the starting quarterback at NC State. But another very intriguing portal prospect that just hopped in. Malik Murphy, the backup quarterback for the Texas Longhorns, is in the portal. And according to ESPN's Pete Thamel, he will not be with the Longhorns at the college football playoff semifinal at the Sugar Bowl. This is significant, really significant. Now, Malik Murphy won a really hotly contested backup quarterback battle with Arch Manning in the spring. It went throughout the course of the summer, and he ultimately established himself as the number two. He is now going to move on and will be going somewhere else, which means Arch Manning, the prized, heralded blue chip recruit, will back up Quinn Ewers for the semifinal game and for Texas, what their fans are hoping for, potentially a national championship berth. And you're probably saying, why are we talking about backup quarterbacks? Well, I hate to bring this up for the Longhorn faithful, but the last time the Longhorns were playing in the game of this magnitude in the postseason, their backup quarterback played a very pivotal role. Hoping the best for all involved. Hoping the best for Malik Murphy. We're in a weird time in college football. and We need to really evaluate the calendar in the postseason. We will evaluate the calendar and when the portal should open, when you should leave your team, all those other things. We can discuss that, but that's not today. What it means at the moment is that Quinn Ewers is number one, but in the event in which he is unable to go, it will be Arch Manning's show, and it might be on the biggest possible stage in college football. That'll do it for us here. And we appreciate you, like I said, as always. For Jack, for Jake, for Mark, who I think is attending a Christmas party on December 13th, which makes no sense, but we respect him and love him nonetheless. And for the other Jack, who's also not here, I'm Greg McElroy. We appreciate you guys so much, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.